to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 29. 1 Samuel chapter 29 is where I want to direct your attention this morning. We're going to read from this passage of scripture in just a moment, but I'd like you to have your Bibles open for the moment when we get there. 1 Samuel chapter 29 as we return to this book again this morning. My grandfather had a pair of red, Christmas red polyester pants. And he used to wear them every year on Christmas when we would, our family would gather together. <clears throat> it was a tradition, I think, that started about 1979. The way they were cut, it looked like it started about 1979. And uh, because on that side of the family, I was the oldest grandson, I was harassed every year by my relatives that my grandfather was going to leave me these pants in his will. That's what I was going to inherit. Um, I thought about those pants when I heard about a, an unusual Christmas tradition that two brothers have enjoyed for a number of years. For a number of years, they have been exchanging a pair of red pants, the same red pants. But what makes this unique is not the gift itself, but how they exchange it. So the first year, these pants were given. Uh, the, uh, one of the brothers took the red pants, tied it around his, uh, one of the tires of his car, and drove through a bunch of snow and ice got the pants off, wrapped them up in a beautiful box, and gave them to his brother. And the next year, his brother, who received the gift, took the pants and put them in a form and covered it with wet cement. And he gave his brother a block of cement and a sledgehammer for Christmas. And then the next year, they, uh, the pants were placed in the framing of a small tool shed, and in order to get to the pants, you had to rip apart the tool shed to get to the pants inside. Uh, then they put the pants in the front seat of a car and ran the car through a compactor and presented a pile of metal. It took a tractor and crowbars to get the pants out of the car. So you've heard the expression, it's, the, it's not the gift, it's the thought that counts. Uh, clearly, this is an illustration of that. There are two men who found a great joy in exchanging this gift. Maybe if you don't like to give gifts, maybe you just need to incorporate more sledgehammers in your presence, and it might help you. Uh, this is the season for generosity, right? Uh, a lot of you have already started uh, thinking about and planning and purchasing and maybe even wrapping uh, Christmas presents. This morning what I want to do is I want to talk to you about the roots of Christian generosity. You don't have to be a Christian in order to be a generous person, but I want to talk in particular about why we value generosity, why we as followers of Jesus are generous people. Have you ever heard of the discipline called evolutionary psychology? So evolutionary psychology, you recognize the word evolution. Evolution is a theory that explains how human beings and all other creatures through the process of natural selection have come to evolve into the forms that they have today. Why does an oak tree look like an oak tree and not a maple tree? Why does a fish like a fish and not uh, like a chicken? Why do human beings have the bodies that we have? One of the problems of the theory of evolution, or the challenges that the theory of evolution uh, runs against, is that there are a lot of things that human beings do, in particular, that don't seem to fit the theory, or don't seem to be explained by the theory. For example, music. Why do human beings, uh, in particular, why do human beings 
who according to the theory of evolution are driven to pass on their genes, why do we invest time in writing and performing music? Now I know some of you are already thinking about it. How else would a young man woo a prospective mate without a guitar and a love song? I know that's what some of you are thinking, right? But what about other types of music? Why do we write music? What's the, the biological imperative there? Or uh, what about religion itself? If evolution is true, why would survival of the fittest lead to the formulation of religious creeds? Why would we invent God if evolution is true? Now, to solve those puzzles, uh, there is a discipline called evolutionary psychology. And evolutionary psychology seeks to answer that question. It tries to explain why the biological process of evolution would um, lead to these, these things, this music and, and, and uh, 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 religion. One of the great challenges for evolutionary psychology, though, is to explain altruism, to explain generosity. Self-giving, self-sacrificial generosity. Generosity that is costly. If all you are is a biological creature that is driven to pass on to your genes to reproduce above all else, why would you willingly sacrifice yourself for someone else? Not just a relative, but a, a stranger. Altruism doesn't seem to fit the mold of evolutionary theory. There's ideas, people are talking about it, but there's nothing that's really answered that challenge. What I want to do is I want to think about, with you about the biblical roots of generosity. And here's how we're going to summarize this narrative that we're going to look at about David in chapters 29 and 30. Here's how I want to summarize it, actually. I think this passage teaches us that generosity comes from the overflow of your experiences of the grace of God. That's the biblical roots of generosity. Why are followers of Jesus generous people? Because we have experienced the grace of God, and our generosity to other people is the overflow of that grace that we have experienced. God is the sure supply of generosity. It starts with Him. He gives us grace, and from us it passes on to other people. I want to show you that from the passage this morning, and we're going to accomplish that goal by, by talking about it in two different headings, if you will. First thing we're going to do is we're going to talk about experiencing grace, and we're going to look at how David experienced the grace of God, and how you might experience the grace of God. In fact, you might experience it in one of two different ways. First, you might experience the grace of God when you put yourself in perilous circumstances. You may experience God's grace when you put yourself in perilous circumstances. When you make a mess of your life, God in his kindness may rescue you. Now let's read chapter 29. Shall we verse, uh, we'll start in verse 1. Actually, we're going to read all of chapter 29. Look at what it says. The Philistines gathered all their forces at Aphek, and Israel camped by the spring in Jezreel. As the, Philistines, as the Philistine rulers marched with their units of hundreds and thousands, David and his men were marching at the rear with Achish. The commander of the Philistines asked, What about these Hebrews? Achish replied, Is this not David who was an officer of Saul, the king of Israel? He's already been with me for over a year, and from the day he left Saul until now, I have found no fault in him. But the Philistine commanders were angry with Achish and said, Send the man back that he may return to the place you assigned him. 
He must not go with us into battle, or he will turn against us during the fighting. How better could he regain his master's favor than by taking the heads of our own men? Isn't this the David they sang about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. You know that popular song, Top 40. Verse 6, So Achish called David and said to him, As surely as the Lord lives, you've been reliable, and I would be pleased to have you serve with me in the army. From the day you came to me until today, I've found no fault in you, but the rulers don't approve of you. Now turn back and go in peace. Do nothing to displease the Philistine rulers. But what have I done? asked David. What have you found against your servant from the day I came to you until now? Why can't I go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? Achish answered, I know that you have been as pleasing in my eyes as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the Philistine commanders have said, He must not go up with us into battle. Now get up early, along with your master's servants who have come with you, and leave in the morning as soon as it is light. So David and his men got up early in the morning to go back to the land of the Philistines, and the Philistines went up to Jezreel. Now we've been out of this book, in and out of this book for the last few months, so let's, let's remember here what's happening. Do you remember the, the trouble that David has gotten himself into? Uh, David has been, just like Achish said, David has been a loyal servant of King Saul of Israel. In fact, David is uh, Saul's son-in-law. He was his bodyguard. He was his most successful general, one of his most helpful advisors. But Saul was jealous of David, so he chased him off. In fact, uh, he believes David is his enemy. And in fact, we spent chapters, didn't we, where where Saul was chasing after David to kill him. So David took uh, took refuge with the Philistines, uh, Israel's enemies. And he lived in this region by, uh, controlled by one of their kings whose name is Achish. Now, here's how he survived. Do you remember this? So, David lived in Ziklag, which was controlled by Achish. And, and David would, and his men would go out on raiding parties. And they would raid the enemies of Israel. They'd go to these towns, um, take plunder, kill the people. And, and then they would come back to Achish. And they would say, not that they had captured Israel's enemies, but that they had gone to Israelite towns and were killing Israelites. So they were lying to Achish about, about who, who they were attacking. And Achish was completely fooled by this. Uh, he thinks that David is now his loyal servant. So when it comes time for the Philistines to go to war against Israel, Achish thinks that David's on their side. He thinks that David has been raiding all these Israelite towns. Surely he'll go with us to war. But, but we know the truth here. What's David going to do? Uh, he can't go fight against his own countrymen. He, he's going to war on the wrong side of the battle lines. He's made this mess for him. Can you imagine here, uh, David and maybe one of his uh, close advisors here, they're packing up to go with Achish up to Aphek to get ready for war. And one of them says, David, we can't go fight the Israelites. We're not Philistines. We don't fight on the side of the Philistines. What are we going to do, David? I, I don't know. I'll figure something out. I'll, I'll figure something out. I, do, I don't know. Now, I want to pause here for just a minute here. David's decision from the beginning to take shelter with the Philistines was foolish. It was was a serious compromise that he's making. He's playing a very dangerous game. He he has to slaughter everyone on these raids. 
he, leaving no survivors, so no one will rat him out. And, he, and he's lying to Achish. He's living with this perpetual deceit. James says that if you're double-minded, you're unstable. Have you ever done anything like this? Made compromises like this? Um, so you come to a situation and you're sure you know what the Bible says. You know what God wants you to do. You're sure about it. But if you do that, you look at the situation you think, if I do that, it's just going to cost me too much. It's going to be too hard. So I'll just do this instead. You make some sort of compromise. Because if I do what I know the Bible tells me to do and I don't compromise, I'm not going to have any friends. I'm going to be lonely. I don't want to do that. Or maybe your business is involved. I, I know what the Bible says, but it's just going to cost me too much. And all of my competitors, they don't do this. They do this. If, if I don't compromise here, if I don't cut corners, I'm not going to be able to afford it, and my business is going to go under. I won't be able to support my family. Surely that's not what God wants. <laughs> so if I just cut some corners here, it'll be better. I'll, I'll be more... I'll be able to give more money to the church if I just cut these corners here. Right? In those situations, what you have is you have an overactive sense of worry and an underdeveloped sense of imagination for how God can and does provide for his people. You can't imagine how God might intervene or what he might do, so you have to compromise. You have no other choice. On Thanksgiving Day, because we'd never seen it before, my children were interested in it, we watched Chariots of Fire, a movie from 1981. And boy, the soundtrack sounds like it's from 1981. Well, you, you know the story, right? Eric Little wouldn't run the race, the qualifying race at the Olympics, uh, uh, because the races, the, the qualifying heats were on Sunday. I don't, I don't share his convictions about Sunday in that way, but this was his, his conviction. He wanted to honor God, so he refused to compromise. And instead, he, he entered another race that he hadn't trained for, and he wasn't ready, really ready for. Just as he was taking his, his part at, at, at the, the start line, just as he was getting ready to go, somebody handed him a note, and it was a quote from Scripture on the note. It said, The one who honors me, I will honor, God says. The one who honors me, I will honor. Do you have a well-developed enough sense of imagination to understand that when you do things God's way, He has a way of protecting and providing for His people. Well, David did not in this, this section of Scripture. He, he compromises and he puts himself in this situation. He puts himself in this mess. Is God going to rescue him from this mess that he's in? Now, there's something else that we can think about here in this text. This is wonderful how this text compares King Saul and King Achish. So there's two kings. Both men appointed David as their chief bodyguards. Saul did, so did Achish. Both men benefited from David's military prowess. Uh, both men, though, were wrong about David. Think about this here. Saul thinks David is his enemy when he's actually his friend. And Achish thinks David is his friend when he's actually his enemy. Both of them are wrong about David. 
We've talked in the past about how David in the Old Testament stands as a figure or a symbol for Jesus. There's, that image is going to get more, more prominent as we read through the rest of Second Samuel. So there's David in the Old Testament and Jesus in the New Testament. And one of the ways that they're alike as we read these stories is that they're welcomed and rejected by all sorts of different people. In fact, the New Testament quotes some of the Psalms that David wrote. When, when David wrote about being rejected by someone or betrayed by someone, the New Testament quotes those Psalms about the Lord Jesus. Saul and Achish in this passage are both wrong about David. And I want to suggest to you this morning that it is possible for you to have an opinion about the Lord Jesus and to be wrong. No one ever thinks they are. People have all sorts of ideas about who Jesus is, which side of history he's on, what issues he'd fight for and who he would oppose. And a lot of people believe that whatever opinion they have, they must be right. But the Bible raises the possibility that you can be wrong about Jesus. And being wrong about Jesus has eternal consequences. Every year around Columbus Day, there's articles in the newspaper vilifying Christopher Columbus, right? Some Journalist or scholar will write some article about how horrible, what an awful person he was. And, and in, in the midst of those voices, though, there's usually one or two timid folks who defend Christopher Columbus and want to talk about how great a guy he was. You can be right or wrong about Christopher Columbus. It doesn't really matter. You still get the day off, right? You can be right or wrong about Christopher Columbus. There's not that many much consequence to that. But you cannot... You must not be wrong about Jesus. And the Bible is the only reliable source. Now let's go back to the story here. David's in hot water. What's he going to do? He's marching to war, but he's going on the wrong side. So what's he going to do? Actually, he does nothing. In his providence, God uses the Philistine generals to rescue him. They tell Achish, send that guy home we're not taking him to battle. Here is the rescuing, providential grace of God. God can rescue his people when they put themselves in perilous circumstances. That may be, by God's kindness, one of the graces that you experience in your life. When you compromise and you make a mess of your life and you're in these perilous situations, God may, in his kindness, rescue you. He doesn't have to. Oh, he never has to do anything by his grace, right? D- don't put yourself in situations where uh, it, this is tempting God. When Satan uh, comes to Jesus and tells him to throw himself off the temple, Jesus says, you shouldn't put the Lord your God to your test. Don't put yourself intentionally in situations where God will has to, has to rescue you by his grace. Don't, don't test him that way. But he, according to his kindness, May. You may experience the grace of God when you put yourself in perilous circumstances. David did here in this passage. Then in the next scene that we come to in this book, in chapter 30, um, David, he goes from bad to worse, so, so he experiences God's grace when he puts himself in a perilous circumstance. Here, he experiences God's grace in chapter 30. Uh, you may, too, when you're at the bottom. When you hit the bottom... Not just when you put yourself in a perilous situation, but when you hit the bottom. You're at the bottom. So let's read chapter 30, shall we? Uh, we'll start, we'll read a few verses here. So David and his men, 1 Samuel 30, reached Ziklag on the third day. 
Now the Amalekites had raided the Negev and the Ziklag. They had attacked Ziklag and burned it and had taken captive the women and everyone else in it, both young and old. They killed none of them, but carried them off as they went on their way. When David and his men reached Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives had been captured, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters, but David found strength in the Lord his God. Then David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. Abiathar brought it to him, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? Pursue them, he answered. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. David and the 600 men with him came to the Besor Valley, where some stayed behind. 200 of them were too exhausted to cross the valley, but David and the other 400 continued the pursuit. They found an Egyptian in a field, and brought him to David. They gave him water to drink and food to eat, part of a cake of pressed figs and two cakes of raisins. He ate and was revived, for he had not eaten any food or drink, any water for three days or three nights. David asked him, Who do you belong to? Where do you come from? He said, I'm an Egyptian, the slave of an Amalekite. My master abandoned me when I became ill three days ago. We raided the Negev of the Carathites. Some territory belonged to Judah and the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag. David asked him, can you lead me down to this raiding party? He answered, swear to me (coughs) before God that you will not kill me or hand me over to my master and I will take you down to them. All right, it's about 75 miles from Aphek down to Ziklag. Uh, Aphek's where David was with the Philistines down to Ziklag, his home. 75 miles takes him three days to travel that distance. 25 miles a day. And at the end of that third day, they have marched hard. And when they, they were, uh, just as they're coming over the rise, they're expecting to see their, their town of Ziklag. And they're expecting to get a warm welcome from their families and to be comforted by their children, have a home-cooked meal, and sleep in their own beds. Uh, they see their village smoldering. And it crushed them. Verse 4 talks about their weeping. These are tough men. These are the Navy SEALs of the Old Testament. And after this 75-mile march, they come across, their their town is burned, and everybody they know and love is gone. It's hard to uh, to estimate, or to overestimate, uh, overstate how um, devastating this was for them. David is at the lowest of lows here in this, this chapter. This is the work of Amalekite raiders. Saul should have taken care of the Amalekites. Do you remember that? God had told Saul to take care of the Amalekites, and he had refused. What's odd in in this 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 story, the Amalekites didn't kill anyone. That's very unusual. They didn't kill anybody. They captured them all. It also tells us that David was just as much a victim as everybody else. He lost both of his wives and his children. And... Because he's in charge, because he's the leader, they want to stone him. That will solve your problems. That's a real good idea. So what does David do? He does this beautiful passage, beautiful phrase, the end of verse 6. 
David found strength in the Lord his God. It's a beautiful phrase. This is a a, a pattern for God's people when they are at their lowest. This is what we do. We find strength in the Lord our God. David had help, had help in this. Do you remember uh, a few chapters ago in 1 Samuel 16? David was at a low point again, and his friend Jonathan came. And in 1 Samuel, that's actually verse 20, uh, chapter 23, sorry. 1 Samuel 23, the text says, Jonathan went to David, and Jonathan helped David find his strength in God. It's a beautiful phrase. It gives me an opportunity to remind you this morning, you should make this your model for your friendships or your accountability group, or your Bible study that you lead with students. I'm here to help you find your strength in the Lord your God. The elders, how about this? The elders of Grace Baptist Church of Millersville serve the congregation by helping discouraged, disheartened, exhausted people find their strength in the Lord their God. It's a great model to set before you when you think about meeting with your Awana clubbers are planning a worship service. My hope tonight is to help this group of kids find their strength in the Lord their God. Now David does that. He inquires of the Lord. And the Lord tells him to, to go and along the way uh, go to war. And along the way he meets an Egyptian. Here again is the providential grace of God. And, and David's going to be generous here. Uh, we'll talk about generosity in a minute. But, but even in the midst of his exhausted grief, J- David is generous to this slave. He gives him this food. He gives him bread and water and, and, and pressed figs. I think it's the, uh, a part of a cake of pressed figs. The Hebrew says fig newtons. But, and then <laughs> two cakes of raisins. It's a lot of sugar. He's really sugaring this guy up, right? Giving this to him. Uh, David meets the, uh, the Egyptian providentially by the grace of God. This morning, my hope for you is I want to remind you and convince you of your experiences and the abundance of God's grace that you have experienced. Um, to do what God has called you to do in this broken world to do everything that God has called you to do in, a broken, in this broken world. You need the grace of God. Sometimes you're just so used to, to managing things on your own, you feel like you're doing them on your own, and you, you're not consciously aware of the grace of God. Some of you don't notice the grace of God because it appears so normally, not with thunder, but, but what you might be tempted to dismiss as mere coincidence as unremarkable happenstance. They just happen to come across this Egyptian, right? When do you need the grace of God? You need the grace of God when you are at the bottom. You need your grace of God when you put yourself in, in perilous circumstances. You need the grace of God all, all in between, and, and God provides it, and he often provides it in ways that you don't notice, or that, that you're not conscious, because it doesn't come with thunder. It, it just comes in what you might dismiss as a, as a coincidence. We don't sing it very often, but uh, Annie Flint wrote a poem a long time ago that became a song. Some of you recognize it. It's called, she spoke King James. It's called, He Giveth More Grace. This is how it goes. 
He giveth more grace when the burdens are greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added afflictions, he added his, addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power, no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. That's what David is experiencing. He experienced it in, in Philistine generals. He experienced it in Egyptian slaves. He experienced it in the fact that there was a priest there to answer his questions that he had. He experienced it in the strength that he found from God. God's grace overflowing into David's life. Now verses 16 through 20 are about the victory that David wins. Let's look at it here. The Egyptian, verse 16, led David down, and there they were, the Amalekites, scattered over the countryside, eating, drinking, and reveling because of the great amount of plunder they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from Judah. David fought them from dusk until the evening of the next day, 24 hours, and none of them got away except 400 young men who rode off on camels and fled. David recovered everything the Amalekites had taken, including his two wives. Nothing was missing, young or old, boy or girl, plunder, or anything else they had taken. David brought everything back. He took all the flocks and herds, and his men drove them ahead of the other livestock, saying, this is David's plunder. Uh, If they're going to stone you when they're down, they're going to crown you when you're up. Right? David's plunder. Verse 21, Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow him and who were left behind at the Basor Valley. They came out to meet David and the men with him. As David and his men approached, he asked them how they were. But all the evil men and troublemakers among David's followers said, Because they did not go without us, we will not share with them the plunder we recovered. However, each man may take his wife and children and go. David replied, No, my brothers, you must not do that with what the Lord has given us. He's protected us and delivered them into our hands, the raiding party that came against us. Who will listen to what you say? The share of the man who stayed with the supplies is to be the same as that of him who went down to the battle. All will share alike. David made this a statute and ordinance for Israel from this day, from that day to this. When David reached Ziklag, he sent some of the plunder to the elders of Judah who were with his friends, saying, Here is a gift from you from the plunder of the Lord's enemies. David sent it to those who were in Bethel, Ramoth, Negev, and Jatir, to those in Arior, Sifmoth, Eshtimoah, and Rakal, to those in the towns of the Jeremelites and the Kenites, to those in Hormah, Borashan, Athic, and Hebron, to those in all the other places where he and his men had roamed. This is an astounding victory that David wins here. Again, the grace of God. Uh, just think about it here. David's got 400 men with him. And he wins this great victory, so great that the only people who escape are 400 men on camels. If your attacking army is the same size as the few people who escape, what does that mean about the victory? This is just an astounding victory that he wins over a much larger group of men. And we see here the, uh, David experiencing in verses 21 and following his extending generosity. So we've talked so far about how God, uh, David has experienced God's grace. He's experienced God's grace um, through the Philistines and through this Egyptian and through the strength to go and win this battle. He's experiencing God's grace. Now he's going to extend generosity. 
what's interesting here, they, they, they win and there's a debate about what to do with the plunder. On the one side are men that the Bible describes as, I love this, verse 22, evil men and troublemakers. You really wonder how the, the author of Samuel feels about these guys, right? I wonder which side he's going to be on. Whose side in the debate is he going to take? Do I want to be on the side of evil men and troublemakers? Or the other side is David. The evil men and the troublemakers want to be generous enough to give these men uh, their, their wives and their children, but they, none of the plunder. David says, no, we, we need to share everything equally. And the reason that he wants to share <coughs> the plunder equally is, he says in verse 23, because of what the Lord has given us. No, my brothers, verse 23 says, you must not do that with what the Lord has given us. He has protected us and delivered us into our hands this raiding party. David, notice what is motivating David's generosity here. David is motivated by what God has done for him. God has guided us here. He's protected us. He's provided for us. And because what we have is a result of the grace of God, we are generous people. The text tells us that David used some of his plunder. Some of his plunder, we read all those names, they're so hard to pronounce. He sent the plunder to these leaders of Judah. Interesting. Uh, Peter Leithart says, uh, Samuel, when, when the Israelites first asked for a king a long time ago, Samuel had said to them, the king will rule by taking. He'll take and take and take and take from you. And in contrast here, David is going to become king by giving and giving and giving and giving. Contrast is important. David is generous because of his experience of the overwhelming grace of God. There is a connection between what God has graciously given him and his generosity to others. There's this connection in the Bible. What God has given to us and what we give to others. I wonder if in your life you have made that connection. Don't give because you feel guilty about what you have and what other people don't have. You'll be sitting in your house, you've just eaten Thanksgiving dinner, there's a plate of fudge ahead of you, and when you've put your sixth piece in your mouth, there'll be a commercial on television about some poor child somewhere in the inner city who has nothing, and, and call this number and give them money. And you look down at that sixth piece of fudge while the five have disappeared, and the sixth piece of fudge that you're going to eat, and you think, oh man. And, and you give the money because you just feel guilty. It's a terrible reason to give. Don't give because you feel guilty. Don't give because you're just fulfilling an obligation. Hey, it's secret Santa time at the office. Woohoo! Love this. I have to do this. You go to the dollar section at Target to soothe your guilt. Satisfy the obligation. I have to. Give because you've made this connection between the grace of God that you have experienced and, and, and the generosity that you can extend. When I first started serving here at Grace, uh, all the way back in the last century, <laughs> uh, there were two men on the board of deacons, we had a board of deacons at the time, who were often on opposite ends of most issues. I could describe them in greater detail. You would, know, you would recognize them. They, they often disagreed, and sometimes our disagreements got a little heated. <clears throat> it dawned on me one day, though, as I was thinking about both of these men, 
that as they sat around the table and we disagreed about how the church should function and what the church should do, what these two men both had in common was this immense sense of personal generosity. I watched them. They'd loan out and give things away to people. It was, it was astounding. They shared what they had with anybody who asked. We would talk about a need around the, the, the table. That's all we ever always agreed on. Is there a need? Let's meet the need. Let's, 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 let's give to this person who has needs. Both of these men, what they had in common, they disagreed about so many things. But what they had in common was they had experienced the grace of God and it overflowed in their lives in generosity. Is there anything that you have in your house, in your wallet right now? Is there anything that you have that is not there because of the grace of God? There's this confidence that we have as followers of Jesus Christ that since God has been so generous to us, we can be generous with other people. Since God has given us so much, we can then extend generosity. If you need more help in, in making that connection, remember what I said about David and Jesus and how the two fit together. I don't, I don't want to dabble too much in allegory here as I read this story, but remember that the story of the New Testament is how the Lord Jesus has come and he has rescued his bride too. His bride hasn't been captured, of course, by Amalekites, but it's been captured by the forces of sin and death. I was listening yesterday to an old recording of a God rest ye merry gentlemen. We don't sing that much in church, but you can hear it in Coles if you go shopping. God rest ye merry gentlemen. Let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. When we were captured by the forces of sin and death, the Lord Jesus went to war for his people and he triumphed over his enemies on the cross. And he's rescued us. And he's given to us generously. The Lord Jesus publicly triumphed over sin on the cross. He died in our place bearing the penalty we owe. He rose from the dead. Because of our compromises, because of our rebellion against him, because of our doubts, the Lord Jesus is our substitute. He died for us. We're all evil troublemakers. He's our rescuer. And Ephesians 4 says that when he ascended on high, he gave gifts. Well, just like David. Give gifts. And he gives and he gives and he gives and he gives. Generosity comes from the overflow of the experiences of the grace of God. That may be tested in your life this month when you have to go shopping again. You may think to yourself, why am I here? Why am I buying this present? Overflow of the grace of God may be tested this month. That, your commitment to that, that connection, may be tested this uh, next year as we move towards renovating this building, the connection between the grace of God and your generosity. Huh. Have you made that connection, brothers and sisters? Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you for this story, that uh, this narrative about David that his own experiences. Lord, even as we think about his overflowing generosity that comes at the end of this passage, Father, I am mindful of the people that are much more today feeling his experience early in chapter 30, the exhaustion and sorrow that, that comes from just living 
in this broken world. Lord, I do pray that it would be true of us that we would encourage and help one another find our strength in the Lord our God. Uh, Lord, make us generous people with our encouragement and our kindness towards those who are despairing today. But Lord, I do pray more specifically that you would help me in my life to make this connection between your great grace to me and the generosity that I extend to others. Uh, Lord, make this this connection strong in our thinking, in our minds, and in our hearts. Free us from giving out of guilt or obligation or giving begrudgingly. Help us to give, Father, because you have been generous to us. Uh, Make us a, a people who are pleasing to you and cheerful givers, we pray. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.